You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. On today's podcast episode, we are going to spend time with Heather Tidwell, a fellow colleague working in the field of addiction who shares a passion for family recovery. Listen as we discuss how the current systems are failing families and why this happens. Heather discusses the vital role of meeting families where they are at. And together, we discuss realities of life within a family when a loved one with the disease of addiction returns home from a treatment center. This part of the journey can be very hard to navigate for our family members, but it doesn't need to be this way. Please meet Heather Tidwell. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Let's get started, Miss Heather. So glad you're with me. I am excited to have you on the podcast as a colleague in the field, working with people with the disease of addiction. I would love you to introduce yourself to us in the way you want to. Who's your qualifier, if you want to share that, or what got you interested in working in the field of addiction? And welcome well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I consider it such a blessing just to have this this opportunity to speak with you and and your listeners. Um, addiction is something I've always really been interested in since I can remember, probably since middle school. It was something that I was exposed to myself, in my family, in my community, in my school. And it was something, though, that I didn't really understand what I was seeing. And it was something that wasn't necessarily talked about. And it was almost whispered about, you know, like behind closed doors and things were kind of kept very tight. And it was very taboo to talk to others, others about it. When I got to college, I was even more just kind of like interested and invested to immerse myself as a individual that could potentially be an agent of change and kind of change like the culture around addiction for both individuals, families, and for systems. I went to a very small high school. It was a public school in North Jersey. And I graduated with 68 people, four of which have passed away since then of overdoses. I'm sorry. Thank you. And it was something too that just my community as a whole didn't really know how to grieve, how to deal with it, how to acknowledge it. And it kind of perpetuated in my community as a problem pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. And we lost more, more young adults in that same community grade through grade. So one thing I did in my bachelor's and master's is um, I specialize in the social work field uh, with a acute specialization with addiction. I got my bachelor's and master's um, from San Diego State University, go Aztecs. <laughs> and I don't know, as some of you may know, San, San Diego, because of the closeness to a variety of military bases, we have a pretty large population of homeless veterans 
that are suffering from some type of like mental concern, as well as a co-occurring addiction use. So something I got really into was working with veterans who were suffering from addiction. I then kind of transpired and I started working with adolescents suffering from addiction. And then, of course, whenever you're working with an adolescent or really with anybody in addiction, you're working with families. So this is something I'm a licensed certified addiction specialist. I believe in continuously immersing myself in what is out there and what is new as far as what are evidence-based interventions to help not just only the people in active addiction, but their families as well. So Heather, that's an amazing background of training and passion and academics. And not everyone, not a lot of people are drawn to this part of mental illness and addiction specialty. And do you think it was coming from a small school and having those four paths that kind of propelled you to want to go further? Was it when you got to school, just more interest in learning about it? You know, what was it for you that made you say, you know what, this is my sweet spot. This is where I'm going. I think for me, as I started to really get like some more psychoeducation learning, just about addiction and mental health, and also like what are some resources out there and what are some resources that aren't out there, I honestly kind of got angry mm-hmm. at what had occurred in my community and also what I saw kind of occurring around me from like a system point of view. And that, you know, addiction is so messy. It's messy. It involves crisis. It's not something that individuals usually like acknowledging or talking about. And it's something that I found that when we do talk about it and when we do acknowledge it using assertive communication, healthy boundaries, acknowledging that the person in addiction is the expert on themselves and not kind of giving them like a handbook that they have to do if they want to get what we view as a version of better. I just found myself very drawn into the messiness of it, that something can still be messy. But that being said, we can approach it from a clinical perspective with a calm body and a calm mind and really begin to look at out-of-the-boxes interventions to lead to positive outcomes in a field where it kind of has this overshadow where there's not a lot of positive outcomes. So I love that Bin, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I mean that in the most yeah. positive way. I love that your description of it is is the messiness, which boy, we know that's true. It's messy for the whole family. It's messy for the person. It's it is a messy illness, and it's counterintuitive when you love someone with addiction because you can't go after it like you would if you love someone with cancer. It's a very different dynamic between the family members, and I think one of the things that we don't do well is teach families and systems healthy ways with communication and boundaries you know treatment centers historically don't do a lot for the family they take the person out of the system mm-hmm. them, and then put them back and neither know how to reintegrate after treatment is that your experience as well 100 percent. and it's really interesting mm-hmm. after you and i kind of first talked about me being a guest on this podcast Again, I love knowledge and I also understand, yes, I've been in this field for 15 years. I don't know all the things and there's so many various lenses 
to look through. So, you know, of course, after we spoke initially, I go down that rabbit hole of looking at all these evidence-based articles of looking at testimonials and blogs from family members who have an individual that's in active, active addiction, from looking at drug users. I even got into exploring a drug user union that they have in North Carolina. And regardless of what your lens is, it seems that everybody agrees is that the opposite of addiction is connection. For sure. And how important it's to connect. And it's like what you just said. So what happens? Somebody's in addiction. I take them out of their schools, take them out of their families. You know, I lock them up. I take them out of their communities. And then what happens is let's say we go to like a treatment center. So let's say mom goes to like a treatment center. She comes back. Well, that family system is going to be dysregulated because prior to that, that family system, their homeostasis or their stability, they were used to like the rules of the addiction. Maybe we all knew around five o'clock, mom's going to go upstairs. She's going to have a couple bottles of like wine. So we know that the adolescents, you know, they're, they don't really have like a lot of oversight. They're able to kind of do whatever they want. Maybe like they don't have, have curfew. Well, now we come back this system, which is used to mom being dysregulated. Well, the system's still dysregulated because they're used to those norms, those values in that culture. So now here comes back sober mom. You know, maybe now I'm speaking a little bit more assertively to like my kiddos. I'm expecting them to go to bed, to turn this off, to listen to me. Well, what we're going to find is, is that that system is going to push against mom. It's, it's dysregulated. This isn't homeostasis. We're not used to this where again, we really should be talking about that discharge plan. The minute mom enters treatment and there should be that, that connection to that family system she's going to go back to. You know, most relapses happen 72 hours after being discharged from a treatment facility. We know how to be in there without all of this, but then we we get back and we don't know how to get back to the system, to what our baseline is. Right. I think the other component that you absolutely see in a person who's sought services and is returning home, I use the word familiar. What was familiar mm-hmm. is automatically reinstated. And if someone comes back to do it different, Mm -hmm. your cause is the reaction. I also think shame is a big pusher. You use the example Mm -hmm. of a mom who went off to treatment and comes home. A mom is coming to consciousness and awareness for the first time in a long time of the impact of her mothering due to the disease hurting Mm -hmm. and taking her away. And so often I will coach people when I worked in the treatment centers to not go home and try to be super mom or super dad because there's no credibility and no trust yet. Yeah. And so if you go back mm-hmm. and jump in full force, there's going to be even more of a resistance because your loved ones don't have a sense of trust and credibility that you're going to sustain recovery. So take it slowly, reintegrate slowly, but it's tough. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also, and What you just said kind of triggered me to like, think of something is that it's great that mom may may be getting, you know, again, traditional care. It used to be 90 days inpatient now with like insurance changes. It's usually 30 days. So, but still mom's getting 30 days of intensive. Like it's usually three groups a day. They're doing a skills group. You know, maybe she's meeting with a psychiatrist, but the family is still there. And most of the time, 
they are not getting connected to services. So they themselves can maybe learn or just be proactive or have some of their own tools because they're also dealing with all of the reactions from addiction. And most likely, especially if there's kiddos in like the home, we've most likely experienced some type of trauma. I mean, just being under the age of 18 and living in a home with an individual that is actively using is one of those adverse childhood experiences that we do know has adverse outcomes, Mm -hmm. but we don't treat that. Mm -hmm. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Are you a clinician, a recovery coach, a prevention specialist? a judge who's considering drug court? Have I got the resource for you? Naradan hosts the Rural Institute every year in Menominee, Wisconsin. And this year in 2024, between the dates of June 9th and 13th, Rural Institute will be celebrating the 40th anniversary of these incredible conferences filled with hours of CEUs that can be so vital to all of us working in the field, maintaining our licenses. The price is reasonable. The venue is relaxing and connected and intimate. And the speakers are so good. A variety of experienced speakers from keynote speakers that you won't want to miss. So please find in the notes below a link to the Naradan Rural Institute held in June of 2024, from the 9th to the 13th. I'll be there. I can't wait to see you. And I hope you will look into joining us for this incredible event. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. Well, I think, Heather, the other thing that this raises is one of the reasons I started Embrace Family Recovery, because we do subserve and underserve the families. And so mm-hmm. they're going into a, a withdrawal when their loved one's in treatment. Partners, mm-hmm. parents, children on some level, but definitely partners and parents in that they don't know how to navigate their family life without that person because they're used to try to fix, manage, control. And when they're gone and getting the help they so desperately want, which is wonderful, and they're very grateful that they're getting help, they're left with resentment, rawness, trauma, fear, all the feelings that are masked Mm -hmm. by focusing on someone else. And they're no longer in their purview of control And they can often spin out and struggle and how that manifests. And I'm sure you've seen it too. You know, they want to jump in and try and manage the treatment process. They want to be in touch with the clinicians all the time and make sure they know everything. Or they have no contact whatsoever because they're just done. Or they get irritated when they get calls because it's like, it's not my problem. It's their problem. Get them fixed, you know? And so that's a lot of unresolved pain, grief, and hurt that isn't even touched. And then the person comes back shiny and polished from treatment and looking so much better and want to jump in and do everything right. Very noble, nothing wrong with it, but they're met with a whole different level of Mm -hmm. resistance because the family doesn't know what to do or how to trust this new person walking in or this changed person. And I also feel, you know, and again, like when we're talking about addiction, it's, It's systems, it's systems of care. And it's also 
you know, I think too, on like us as clinicians and on those treatment centers and on, you know, emergency rooms, like where, you know, where they're seeing overdoses and things like that. And, you know, I've worked in three different emergency rooms. When we see an overdose, like it's treat them and treat them. And then we'll give them a bus pass. They'll go get detox and they'll be right back next week. But still as providers, I see such an area of opportunity and growth where we can partner and pair with the family. And I know that you and I, like when we first met, we talked about motivational interviewing skills, which is my jam. I'm obsessed with it. And I use that with every single individual I work with, specifically with individuals in addiction. Mm -hmm. As the goal is, you meet that individual exactly where they're at. You roll with their resistance and you work on enhancing their intrinsic motivation for change. Well, what I did after our initial, you know, kind of talk is I looked more into motivational interviewing with families when the member is suffering from addiction. And they found that one, which I think is so great because, you know, resources everywhere can be limited depending on like insurance. If you live in like a rural area is that motivational interviewing encompasses such basic tools that family members can go online and educate themselves just about some of the skills and the model, and it could completely change the dialogue to where they are presenting with less resistance. And they're able to kind of talk about like maybe safety in the family and what that looks like in regards to that individual. And it's, it's very powerful. And also let's say we do have somebody doing in treatment treatment or partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient treatment is having that provider be able to, again, connect with the family and have them working on their own kind of like stuff that they have going on simultaneously while ideally doing at least like bi-weekly family sessions where it's not saying you shouldn't feel this way. It's, hell yeah, you're allowed to be angry. That's okay. Now, how do we work on the acceptance of that and how do we respond to that versus not react? And how do we not just go all in or be all out, but how do we get to some semblance of a middle ground and acknowledge this is going to be uncomfortable, not for everybody. This is going to be hard. And how do I meet that family there? And how do I acknowledge and respect that the bandwidth of family in early recovery, when someone's getting whatever level of care they're getting is pretty limited to growing because they're Mm -hmm. still just catching their breath from whatever led to them finally seeking care. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I would love in a system approach, our people working in this industry around people with the illness and their families to start including families in their work. The dilemma that I am hearing in my head is what I've heard from many trainings I've done and being around people in the treatment world. Our bandwidth with the chronicity of clients walking in the door, the level of intensity of the work we're doing mixed with managing our insurance Mm -hmm. requirements of documentation, families are more of a problem than a help. And so I focus on the client. And I know you're going to react to that because I react to it too. Oh, it's true. I get it. It's true. How... A lot of clinicians, and I'm going to, they hate working with families because it's so difficult. You're managing so many different diets and roles, triangulation, um, 
you know, family rules, family culture. It's something I personally love. I love working with families. And, you know, like the more I'm like, okay, let's do this. You know, you guys have survived 20 plus years with this. And you've all said and admitted it sucks. It's been miserable. Well, you made it through. Now, how do we kind of work together? And also like acknowledging I'll work with like family members where they're like, I'm not saying anything. I'm done. This is this person's 10th time. I'm like, all right, well, what would be your thoughts of maybe I just phone you in on speaker and you don't have to say a thing, but, but you listen, or maybe if they're open, if maybe I give you a little bit of like an email breakdown, meeting them where they're at and validating that, that frustration and not saying, well, you're being a bad sister. You're being a bad partner because you need to support this person. But I do agree with you. And that's something too I do in my practice is I do my own education with my clinicians on working with families, how we don't have to be scared mm-hmm. and how do we use our skill set from a systems view. Because in my opinion, if you're not looking at systems, and, and I mean family systems, hospital systems, I mean community systems natural and formal supports, I'm doing a disservice to the person in front of me, whether it's one individual or a family unit. And I think it's important because a lot of my listeners are families to say, like you, I disagree with families being the problem or a burden. I don't like labeling anyone. And I Mm -hmm. think the reality is, is families are tenacious and survivors and have navigated stuff that people who've not been through this have no comprehension of the levels of stress they've lived with. And to be in front of a clinician is huge progress. What I also can say is when I've watched families get help, whether their loved one is seeking treatment or not, the change within the system is dramatic. And the influence on that loved one, Mm -hmm. they're setting boundaries, finding ways to navigate the relationship in a healthier way separating the person from their disease, putting boundaries against the disease. It is amazing to watch how that can transform the system and also impact in a positive way the person who's struggling with the illness of addiction. It's so powerful. And one thing, rather than than looking for triggers, let's look for glimmers, especially in, you know, like a family system. And this idea, and I use this sometimes when I do trainings, it may not be the most PC thing, but I always say, I'm a junkie for transformation and for change. Like that is my addiction. When I see it, so when I'm working with like a family and maybe like they just shared something that is a huge win or or a huge glimmer, but they don't necessarily see it that way. I'm like, well, hold the phone, hold the phone. Everybody stop. Oh my goodness. Like, did we just realize what y'all just accomplished as a system? This is guys, we've been on now for 10 minutes. I'm hearing respect. You know, I'm hearing understanding and, and we're making eye contact and we're, and also everybody's here. Dad, this is the first time I heard you say anything this whole session. Like it's, it's looking for those glimmers when, I mean, even culturally, like we're so prone to look at like the negative and, you know, do this, but you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's great. We, you know, maybe we're aware of what our triggers are, but what about like the daily glimmers and what do those look like? And do we celebrate those just kind of like how we harp on the relapses? Do I celebrate like these glimmers? And I think that's a great word. And I agree with you. And I think both are equally valuable and I do a hundred percent agree. And I think it's due to the fear 
that we focus on the worst case scenario, what yep. could happen, how do I plan, how do I prevent, how do I control and all of that. And so putting out the glimmers and really highlighting them is a beautiful way to do it. I love that, Heather. And I think that's so important for families to know that's a simple change they can make for themselves without a therapist or a professional or a coach. They can start looking for the glimmers in their family system. Right now, I do outpatient work. Mm -hmm. So the like primarily I'm working, you know, with that one individual. But often, you know, again, with addiction, I'm always working with the family system. You know, so whether like that individual is open to you know, uh, parent partner joining is I always try to give, you know, I'll say, yes, I am this individual's clinician, you know, there are HIPAA guidelines, but I always share, you know, would you be open or even interested if maybe I sent you some like just resources, you know, if you wanted just to kind of educate yourself on like ways or even tools that you can do, you know, I'll always offer therapy as well, but I want them to have more informal resources that they have control over. I always recommend um, families look into uh, acceptance. Stephen Hayes is the founder of that. He's written over 40 books about it. He's published usually every three weeks. He's on several podcasts. His concept of like acceptance can be used in regards to addiction and it is so powerful and it can be very freeing just to you know, I always think like the families, when they have somebody in active like addiction in their family, it's almost like they're holding on to this 25 pound weight. And it's like, they're just, you know, and we never know when that weight's going to drop, but mm -hmm. we feel like we have to just, oh, but acceptance is a way to kind of like put that weight down, maybe breathe for a little bit, understand it a little bit more and be able to hold it. Not mm -hmm. saying that we're getting rid of it but we hold it in a different way. So I always talk to them about acceptance, the motivational interviewing skills. And so much of this stuff is free on podcasts, on, on Insight Timer. Sure. So you give them a lot of resources. One of the things I should be transparent on how we met, um, I reached out within our professional community in the area to find someone who would talk about harm reduction because of it being recovery month. And mm -hmm. I, I really want to talk about Narcan and access to that. And in North Carolina, they've made some serious progress about having it be accessible in vending machine mm -hmm. and free and no, no asking, you just go get it. And I think that's tremendous. And I hope that will become a nationwide change that happens because people need to know more about it. And you shared a lot of amazing things when we spoke, Heather, about the types of harm reduction and work you do, which may not be exactly what I've been conditioned and trained to do in my work from the Minnesota model and the abstinence-based model, but I think it's important to recognize there are many ways for people to get well. I have no right to tell anyone the path they need to take. I will be clear about my bias. I know what saved my hiney, what has saved my life, and I will share from my perspective. But at the end of the day, every human being deserves and requires, in my opinion, the autonomy to find their own path. So that makes me excited when I know there are professionals out there that offer different things. A lot of passion in this discussion, which is exciting to know there are others out there in the field of addiction with such passion as Heather Tidwell shows. Come back next week where we continue this conversation and we discuss the importance of understanding harm reduction in addiction and recovery. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, 
EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.